you cannot help your clients around their financial psychology if you don't know your own, if you don't know your own. Today, we get the honor to speak to Dr. Brad Klontz, an expert in financial psychology, financial planning, and applied behavioral finance. Brad and I dive into some deep conversations about risk tolerance, financial literacy, and the importance of having knowledge in the psychology of financial planning. I think I can say we nerded out in this topic. We talk about financial flashpoints, training our minds to a future orientation, getting our clients excited for their future, and why we should interview our parents if we're lucky enough to do so. Brad helps us to understand the importance of helping your clients to overcome and reset from their upbringing and financial tragedies. Brad also teaches us the importance of automation before meditation, hence automate before you meditate. That's just a teaser. This is a great conversation and a deep dive into the importance of understanding our clients and the psychology and financial plan. It's an incredible episode. I had so much fun. Let's get into this great conversation with Dr. Brad Klontz. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Dr. Brad Klontz, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Super excited to be here. Well, thanks so much, man, for taking some time to join us here on Bridging the Gap. We're, we're ecstatic to have you. And as we were kind of talking about before we start recording, the topic that we're, we're going to be talking about is, is so prevalent in our industry, so needed to be talked about, but something that I'm so interested in. But before we even dive into that, just tell us, you know, where are you calling from? And tell us a little bit about your background before we dive into all the topics. Sure. So I am a recent, relatively recent resident of Boulder, Colorado, after 20 years living in Hawaii. So loving it here. Beautiful. Hold on. Let's let's break this down for a second. So you decided to move from Hawaii to Boulder, Colorado. Now, I love Boulder, Colorado, but you were in Hawaii for 20 years. I was. Yeah. You feel like I moved in the wrong direction. Yeah. I I mean, how do you how do you how do you interpret that? Just maybe how I was coming around it and talking about it. I mean, you was the beauty of Hawaii just too much for you and you had to get out or tell me about that. Yeah. So I I had an incredible opportunity right out of grad school to do an internship at the Honolulu VA Medical Center. And then I got a postdoc residency on Kauai. So to my background is in clinical psychology. That's where I got my doctorate. And I got interested in the psychology of money over in Hawaii when I was facing down $100,000 in student loans. And I grew up lower income. I, I was terrified by the debt, to be honest. It was the only way I could get through college. And so a friend of mine over there in Hawaii, I saw him make $100,000 in one year by day trading. And so, Matt, I thought, well, this is must be how people become wealthy. So I sold everything I had. I had a, a lot of extreme behaviors in my life, sold everything I had of value, and I started to day trade with it. I had an incredible run, and then the tech bubble burst. So I was into it about three months, and then boom, I st- it's all started melting away. And then I asked myself the question, why would a reasonably intelligent person do something so stupid with his money? And that's what got me interested in the whole field of psychology because I did a lit review in psychology and it came up empty and it, I was shocked. So the, the entire field of psychology to that point had utterly ignored a, a person's relationship with money and their behaviors around money. And I, I sort of joked that within a matter of a month, I became the world's leading expert in the psychology of money just because clinical psychologists had totally ignored the topic. I, I want to, we're, we're going to skirt away from the the Boulder move, but you moved to Boulder now. So you're calling from Boulder and I love yep. the, the, from Hawaii, but I, I just, I'm, from your perspective, 
why do you think clinical psychologists avoided the psychology around money? Because, I mean, now it just seems like, gosh, it's so silly they would have. But, I mean, what you're talking about, that's only 22 years ago. I mean, it's not that long ago. Absolutely. And um, you'll hear this, you'll hear me say this a lot as we're talking. I'll be like, well, I did a study on it, Matt, because I did, because I was really curious about that question. Like when I went to grad school, they literally said in class, we're here to help people not to make money. And that was sort of the mission. And I always thought it was kind of strange, given that I was racking up all the student loan debt and I had to go pay it all back and I had to go start a private practice and all that sort of thing. But I, I did a study and I looked at the um, beliefs around money of business types. I, I actually drew a sample from the Chamber of Commerce and I compared them to a group of therapist types. So psychologists, social workers. And what we found is a distinct difference in several areas, primarily around beliefs around money. And so unfortunately, the mental health profession sort of loaded with some money is bad, rich people are greedy, there's virtue in having less money, that type of belief pattern, which of course is terrible for your financial health. So we saw that they had lower financial health. Interesting. So, and then, so now, I guess you were one of the impetuses to this being so prevalent of talking about psychology and money. And then you, I mean, you you think about, you know, a lot of what you know, you think Daniel Kahneman and some of those guys that are that are doing this and, and starting to continue to make it prevalent with you. I mean, I guess what what spurred this to become so prevalent, right? Just because I mean, because it makes so much sense. It's so relevant, right? It's rational, right? That we are not rational beings. There's nothing in our lives that make us rational whatsoever. So I guess what what was kind of like that snowball effect that's now made it so big in our industry, psychology, money? What was the spurring of that? You're, you're so kind to say that Kahneman is doing this with me. I, <laughs> I, I will say that, you know, that his whole line of research and behavioral economics and all of that, the real focus on that has been more sort of macro interventions. And one of the focuses they have is essentially it's cognitive psychology. So what they have done is they've taken one branch of psychology, which is cognitive psychology, which looks at all the ways that we're screwed up in our thinking right? Ways that kept us alive and helped us thrive in hunter-gatherer societies that basically hurt us in our modern economic and financial lives. That's really what their entire body of literature is all about. It's, it's how the average human being is just messed up around money. And we are, by the way, we're just wired to do it all wrong. My field of study has really gone directly, get, probably given my clinical background, it's like, okay, great. We know this about cognitive psychology. As a planner, what are you going to do? You're going to tell somebody they have a confirmation bias? I mean, go ahead and try that with your wife, you know, or your husband, you know, the next time they start to complain that you're not doing this or that or whatever, just say, just stop them and say, you know what, I I noticed there's a cognitive bias going on with you. And it's a confirmation bias. And you're just looking for reasons to put me in this category of not doing the dishes or whatever it is. And this is where advisors are stuck. They're like, well, I go ahead. If you say that to your clients, and by the way, I don't suggest you do that. They're all going to leave you and fire you. And it's not a very effective technique. And so really my entire line of research is more along, okay, given that we know that bias, what else do we know about this client? Where did they grow up? Did they grow up lower income, higher income? What are their beliefs around money? What are their early experiences around money? What did their parents teach them around money? What, what about their gender, their culture, their their race, their you know religious background? We are this Combine all these things combine to to create our individual financial psychology, and we have it. Our clients have it, and so that's really been my mission: is try to understand a client, 
How are they thinking? How are they behaving around money? And then on the advisor side, what can I do? And by the way, I am a practicing financial planner, advisor. I own an RIA. So I'm right there in the trenches with advisors, which one one of the things that makes me unique. I, you know, economists, you know, no offense, but I'm not sure they've ever really met a human being. You know, so it's, it's financial planners <laughs> themselves for, only in the mirror. Exactly. That's exactly. I say that teasingly, but they're just coming at it from a different lens. I think that for planners, it's like we got to know about our client psychology so that we can actually be better at our job. I think I mean, the, the idea that it's come you first off, you sitting in the seat, I think, is a huge you know reason why you're able to relate and, and, and it resonates with financial planners. There, there's a few points that I, I want to touch on because you talked about, you know, understanding where they came from and, you know, gender, background, everything. And, it, you know, that reminds me of something that I, I talk a lot about with others because there's a, a, a Tim Ferriss quote that just resonated with me. And he it was actually in a whole article in Medium. And it was like, why do I still use single ply toilet paper? And this guy is like uber successful, has tons of money. And he's like, the only reason I'm using single ply toilet paper is because that's how I my brain was trained when I was a kid that I never reset it when I got older. So I just thought that that was the way it was. And there was something so powerful about that, about, you know, when you think about financial decisions, right? I have a lot of clients that come in and they're like, oh, I need to keep cash, this much cash. And then you ask them about their family. And it's like their parents grew up in the depression and they had no like they had that mentality and they showed it. And so I, I'm curious from your findings. How, what is the impact, right? Like, and how do people overcome that impact of their upbringing to to reset based on their situation as it is today in the new environment that is of today as well? Yeah, so it's a fabulous question, and I love the Tim Ferriss example you just gave. So many of our clients, quite frankly, in a financial planning context, are kind of like Tim Ferriss in that sense. They got where they were because they're vigilant around money. This is one of the categories we found in our research. We call it money vigilance. These are people who have some anxiety about not having enough money. And if you think about it, the only way to you know, become, quote, self-made and to climb the socioeconomic ladder, and you know this by working with clients, is you have to hold on to money <laughs> versus spending it, right? So there, there has to be this sense that future orientation. I'm thinking about the future. And if you don't have a future orientation, if you have a present orientation, you, you're not going to have very much money. You're not going to have very much net worth. Actually, this is very controversial because it, it goes against what a lot of people feel. And I used to teach medit meditation to get people to you know better their financial lives. There's some pretty compelling research that's come out that the more you meditate, the like lower your net worth. And, and part of it is you're focusing on the present. And it makes sense if you think about it, right? You have to have a future orientation to save. And so what's so fascinating is it's some of that anxiety about not having enough that leads to people planning for the future and then saving for the future and investing for the future. And so it can be it can backfire, right? Like we have clients who you're like, um, hey, look, you've been hustling, you've been working, you're kind of a workaholic, you know, that's why you're, you know, your wife's kind of mad at you and your kids won't talk to you. Maybe it's time for you to take a break, you know, and start spending some of your money or enjoying your life. And you know that some of these clients have a really difficult time doing that. And one of the reasons is because quite often they have a perhaps even a traumatic history around money growing up, or they grew up in poverty, or they lived through the Great Depression, or they were really impacted by their parents' experience in the Great Depression. In my writing, I call these financial flashpoints. They have such a profound impact on our lives. And I'll, I'll give you a quick example. 
my grandfather, when he passed away, he passed away in a trailer park. He was living in a trailer park, which, by the way, was a huge step up from where he was living in, in Detroit to go there. He was a hardworking guy, smart guy. And I, it, as a kid, I was like, you know, how come our family doesn't have any money? Like, we've had branches of the family been here since the Mayflower. Like, what's going on? And in trying to understand my own psychology around money, like, why would I take this incredible, terrible risk day trading? I went home and I started to interview my parents. And by the way, I'm already a psychologist at this point. You'd think I'd know, but we'd never talked about money. So I sat down. I'm like, mom, what was it like for you growing up around money? And what was it like for grandma and grandpa? And I found this, this blew me away, Matt. My grandfather never put a dollar in the bank all the way into his 90s because he went to the bank when he was young and his money was gone with the Great Depression. He kept his money in a lockbox underneath his bed until he passed away in his mid 90s, never put a dollar in the bank. It was a traumatic experience for him. It led to beliefs around money. You can't trust banks. You can't trust financial institutions. It was so emotionally powerful. Logic could not intervene on it. Mm, mm. And I think, gosh, that's so powerful. The, all those points, right? The money vigilance, the financial flashpoints. You know, I, I think that there's something interesting, though, that I because the person that's the workaholic that's only looking to the future, I think is like the the rarity that that's always continuously saving for the future that has that future mentality. Because I think there's like two sets of people, right? Your, your grandfather, who is the one that's like, I, I don't trust banks. So I'm just going to spend the money or keep it underneath my, my mattress, which are now the people that just say, I want to just keep cash because I don't want to take risk, but they don't understand that that's not beneficial for them to meet their future goals. It's not, you can't save enough to spend enough in retirement, or you're just going to be working and saving your whole life in order to live. But I've always found, and I've, I've talked to you know a lot of people about it, and I, I'm interested in your perspective on it, is that you have to have a future mindset when it comes to investing and saving. And by the way, are you saying that meditation is bad? I just wanted to make sure I'm clarifying <laughs> I'm, I'm just yeah, kidding. Yeah, they, no, I, oh, okay, yeah, please. Yeah, I didn't do the research. I'm just reporting it. I'm just kidding. I, meditation's great for you. I'm just saying that this is this is what I say. Automate before you meditate. Because once you meditate and if you're successful, you're going to be immersing yourself in the moment, in the present moment, which is great. You forgot about the past. You're not even thinking about the future. You see the problem? So yeah, that's yeah. Auto, automate before you meditate. Now go forth and meditate. Set set your plan, automate <laughs> it, and then go. And then and then that's have, right, some, that's have right. some present moment time. But I think the challenge is, is that, you know, this is why I think young people can't save, is that they can't, it's hard to visualize just human na- nature. If I'm 30 years old, that I'm trying to save for something 35 years away and I haven't even lived 35 years. How how do you help how do we help people overcome that? Because like that I think is a challenge. That's why when people that come to financial advisors are usually 50 to 55 because they can now actually comprehend retirement and what happened 15 years ago, right? They can see and they know what happened 15 years in the previous and they're like, oh my God, that seems like yesterday. Now tomorrow is going to be like yesterday. But that's the challenge I think with financial literacy and financial savings mm-hmm. and why young people don't save. I, what? How did we overcome that? Well, Matt, I'm so glad you asked because I've done a couple studies on it. I told you I'd probably say that a couple times because I was really curious about this myself. Like, how do we get people to save more money? And so one of my favorite studies that I had an incredible opportunity to pull off, we did it in five different cities. I took half the people, I put them in a financial literacy class, an hour long class. I took the other half and I put them in a financial psychology class. And in that financial psychology class, it was an hour long. We got those people to increase their savings by 73%. 
after one hour. The financial education group, it was a 22% increase, which is great. But what did we do? We did a lot of things. But one of the things we did is we got them to visualize their goals. And by by visualize, I, I don't even mean just think about it. I had them create vision boards, cut out paper drawings. I had them bring in a sentimental object that they um, valued from childhood. I got them all crying first, thinking about, you know, why does this matter to you? What matters to you? What are your values? Why are you working? What's the whole point? I got them super, super excited. They had a really clear vision of exactly what it is they wanted. And that's really what you need. You, you know, we are, again, we're, we're emotional beings. We're wired to not think about the future. How do you, like rationally too, how do you sacrifice now for the future, if it's some amorphous goal that has no meaning and no attachment, of course, you're not going to do it. Mm-hmm. So you have to have that strong emotional attachment to those goals, get people really hyped up about them, have them, you know, get really specific. And it, as an advisor, just to make this actionable, you know, you don't ask people just, oh, when do you want to retire? You know, that, that that's great. Good information. But I want to what I would say is, you know, paint me a picture of your ideal retirement. Like, where are you? What are you doing? Who are you with? And I'd get them to actually talk about it and think about it and get sort of emotionally attached to it. Because that is what we have seen in research that really motivates people to do what goes against their natural wiring. Our natural wiring is to consume now, not worry about the future. So get people super excited about a very clear vision for their future. And that's how you motivate them. So out of curiosity, what was the average age of that, of the people in that financial literacy course, that study of that? Because I think that that's super interesting right there. Yeah, I'd have to go look. There was no difference between those two groups. So it was financial literacy, financial psychology. I I, I'm just going to make it up. I think they were in their like 30s or late 20s, but I'd have to go look at the data. And and so I, I love that mentality. And, and can we talk on, you know, how you pr- bring that into practice, right? So, you know, I can I can see some financial advisors, you know, myself there sitting there and be like, okay, Brad, this is great. You did it in a study in a really confined environment. They knew what they're getting into. But, you know, how do I do that in practice? I mean, am I doing vision boards with these people and, and they're pre- pre-meeting preparation is bringing pictures of them as kids and I'm going to make them cry in my office and then paint this picture of their future? Yeah. So what you want to do is redesign your office to be a preschool classroom. <laughs> and um, when, when your clients come in, they're going to be like, oh, there's nothing weird about this this practice. I feel totally comfortable here. It, it's a fabulous point, a fabulous question. And you have an advantage as a financial planner. Here's the advantage financial planning. These people want to plan for the future around their finances. So you're getting a select group of individuals who even seek you out to begin with. So we already know that they're somewhat future oriented. They're they're also probably somewhat money vigilant. Okay. So first of all, these are huge advantages in terms of getting people to do things that's in their financial best interest. And then secondly, you can have them paint the picture, like I said, just verbally. So you, it's you asking the questions, right? It's you saying, tell me more about your retirement. I want to be, you know, 65. Okay. Well, where do you picture yourself then? What do you picture yourself doing? What would your average day look like? Where would you be living? So you can do this all conversationally. And what's so interesting about it is clients are, are probably going to love to have that conversation. You do what a fun mm-hmm. conversation, you know, what, and, and I say, as an advisor, this helps me understand you at a deeper level. I, you know, I want to be the best I can be in terms of helping you meet those goals. And it really helps me to get a really clear picture. You can even blame yourself for it. You know, I, you know, it really helps me to really get, get a clear picture. And sometimes you'll, you're going to notice that clients don't have a really clear picture, which is a warning sign because transitioning to retirement can lead to some depression for people who don't have a really clear vision. So you're doing a service for your clients in that regard also. 
I, I actually love that idea of if they don't have a clear picture that there, there's like this transition period, but that I think creates an opportunity for an advisor, right? Because now, you know, as in, in the time where, where financial advisors or investment managers is becoming a little bit more commoditized, you have to add unique value. So to me, that's like an opportunity to say, well, let's go through an analysis of what you like today, what you enjoy, who you type of person you are, and let's build the future together. Maybe you don't have an idea of it, but you like to travel. Okay, well, where have you traveled? That seems like an opportunity to me. It does. And the other thing that'll happen is what an incredibly fun conversation. Actually, when we're done with the podcast, I'd love for you to ask me those questions, Matt, so I can get all excited about my my future. And think about the emotional experience you're giving a client also, because clients, you know, money is a big source of shame, stress. You know, people are um, anxious about giving you even their financial information. Are you going to judge them? Do I have too much? Do I have too little? Are you going to laugh at me? Like if you ask me when I want to retire and I say 55 I'm worried you're going to laugh at me because here's my data. I mean, so people come in really sort of trepidatious and anxious about being judged. And and so what an incredibly fun, energizing conversation that is going to be very valuable for the client. What's also cool is a couple, like, do they have the same vision for retirement? That, that could be something they've never really talked about. So there's a lot that you can uncover and work with, but you're also giving the client a really positive emotional experience. And, you know, psychologically, subconsciously, when we have positive emotional experiences with somebody, we like to actually go talk to them again. <laughs> so it actually happens to be good for you and your business development if you're looking to get clients and hold on to clients. I love that you say that that sounds like it'd be really interesting and fun when you have spouses that haven't talked about retirement and then they have that conversation with you. To some, it may seem fun. To others, it seems scary because I don't know what's going to happen with that conversation between the two spouses. And then we're going to have to have some mediation uh, between them because one may see a drastic different option going forward. Now, you know, as we talk about this, there's there's two areas I want to maybe dive into and just get your perspective, right? Is one, we were just talking about how economists, you know, it, it's a little bit of a different world, right? Just being a straight economist, but because they build everything on a, on a natural curve, right? Rational thinking and on a kind of a natural curve. And that's how we build all of our financial modeling and financial planning modeling is based off of that. How do you overcome that when it gets into the nuts and bolts as opposed to the like touchy feely emotional side? How does how how do we get across you know that plan or bridge that gap between what is actual reality versus what economists are saying they perceive to be the future or how they perceive that you need to save and invest and grow your wealth to meet your financial planning goals or do you just say throw all that out the the door and just do it kind of on your own what what is your thoughts on that from uh, a planning psychology side yeah so you know I think the limitations to the standard old economic models and financial models. I think those are pretty well known and I think everybody's on board for it right now. As a matter of fact, you may already know this, but I used to basically have to sort of convince advisors that, hey, you know, the psychology is kind of important. And then the old crusty ones are like, no way, man, it's just, we don't, we don't need any of that, you know, but those old crusty ones aren't around much anymore. And the CFP board actually came out and said, hey, look, 7% of the exam and education for future financial planners is psychology of financial planning. That's how important the profession sees it. And if you want to stay on top of it, and if you want to get certified as a financial planner, this is something you're going to have to know and learn. And so that's been kind of exciting for me to see the entire field recognize this. And I'll say this too, the CFP board, that's not a top-down thing. 
what they do is they survey advisors who are in practice. What's important to you? What are you dealing with every day? And this is what emerged from the field. Because if you're a practicing financial planner, I do not have to convince you about why psychology is important and why beliefs are important and why couples fight around money. You know this. You're a mini psychologist to begin with. And it's something that I think is really, really fun and compelling and exciting because money is the biggest source of stress in the lives of Americans. Stress kills people. Financial stress, specifically, there's been studies done that financial stress is a mortality risk factor that's right up there with with diabetes, overeating, heart disease. I mean, so not to not to put too fine a point on it. I feel like as financial planners, we are in a very unique um, position in society to help people deal with the biggest stressor in their lives, almost in, in the sense of a healing capacity, almost like we're a, a physician in that sense around money. Because as I spoke to before, you know, therapists probably aren't the people you want to talk to. They got their own money issues, right? Especially around wealth. And so anyway, you can tell I get kind of passionate about this because I feel like that's a huge opportunity for planners to look at clients more holistically. It's not just about putting you in the right portfolio, assessing your risk tolerance. It's about understanding your life goals, understanding your relationship with money. I think I always tell people that, you know, my clients, they're always like, they always want to just talk about the markets and their portfolio. And I say, this is, you know, my job is 90% acting as a psychologist, 10% on the investment side. The investment side is the easy part. It's how do I navigate your emotions to keep you from hating me, but keep you from actually not hating yourself, right? Like, I'd rather you hate me than hate yourself. And and so uh, navigating that, but not enough advisors do that because they tend to just revert when they're uncomfortable back to what they know, which is data, right. data, and more yep. data. And it just falls on deaf ears. It makes you sound really smart, but you're not making right. any progress. Right. Well, and again, that, that's a little old school because understand this, there's an entire new generation of planners that are coming into the market who understand the importance of psychology, who understand things beyond risk tolerance. They, they actually, the CFP board wants you to want you to assess clients' beliefs around money and understand their background around money and their comfort zones around money. This is all coming out of the profession. And so I think it's like, it'll help your clients, number one. It'll help your business model, number two. If you can learn to communicate with clients in a different way, and if you can look at your work with a client going beyond just the ROI and the meetings just not focused on the charts and graphs. So, so talk to me about this, right? You know, market volatility is a common thing. People are looking about invest about their money. They're watching their portfolios all the time. Now they have access to their portfolios every second of the day, whether it's Robinhood or whatever. They're trading it on headlines. You know, how how do you suggest an advisor dealing with market volatility, handling their clients to help them stay calm during market volatility? I mean, we, we we've already determined that we don't want to send them to meditate. Unless they've right. automated. So we don't want them to do that. So what is the next step for them, for advisors to help their clients in that period of time? Matt, you're going to give me trouble. Everyone meditate. Just, you know, just save and invest first, you know, just because you're going to get hey. focused on the present. All right. So first of all, great, great question. And in the midst of it, it's tough. And because here's the here's the thing, Matt. Advisors are stressed too. Now, I know that you tell your clients, calm down, not you specifically. I know you tell your clients, calm down, don't worry. But then I know what happens because you call me and you're freaking out and everybody freaks out. And it's really important to understand this is a natural human response because as an advisor, it's like, yes, no, no, we shouldn't worry. We shouldn't worry. And then we see other people worrying and we see other advisors 
go 50% cash and your clients come back and say, well, this other guy went 55% cash. What are you going to do? I mean, you're a human being. You have to understand you're messed up around money too. You're vulnerable to the same sort of thing. Back in 2008, I did a study on post-traumatic stress in financial planners in the midst of the Great Recession. Guess what? 90% of them had moderate to high levels of post-traumatic stress, questioning their entire approach to management, having trouble sleeping at night, um, worried about clients. We are vulnerable to this too. And the, the big thing, though, is not to act on it, as you know. And so I'll give you a couple of techniques that we have been training people on and using, and I use it with clients too, myself, um, in the midst of this. So number one, risk tolerance is kind of sketchy. Okay, Matt, it's not the best, most reliable sort of concept around a human psychology. A lot of it's impacted by what's happening in the markets, the day of the week. Also, people take more risks on Friday. They're more excited about the weekend. It's attached to emotions. We've done studies showing that the gender of the person asking you the risk tolerance questions has an impact on your score. I mean, it's, it's, and I'll I'll just, since that's an interesting one, I'll expand. Basically, if a male is asking a female or a female is asking a male, they report higher risk tolerance. It's this weird sort of like animal brain thing. It's like, oh yeah, I'm a risk taker, you know? Trying to show (laughs) off, right. Exactly. Even even if you're married, it it, it actually, you know, relationship status didn't matter in that. So risk tolerance is, is a really sort of sketchy thing. And so just because somebody says they're a risk taker, and I know you know this if you've seen it in practice, when the market crashes, all of a sudden, they're the most fearful client you have. And so one way around that is helping a client almost visualize, like we did with goals, visualize the loss of that money. So what you don't want to say is like, let's say someone has a million dollar portfolio, you know, hey, you know, the worst, worst side on this portfolio, you're down 30%. How does that sound? Oh, yeah, that's fine. You say, well, wait a second. That means that it's now $700,000. So, you know, and, and this actually helps even more. I have I have like stacks of money you see here. So I will lay these out and I'll be like, okay, wait, hold on a second. Let's say each one of these represents 100K. So, so you're, you're telling me that market goes down 30% and I'll take 300,000 and I'll put them in the trash. I'll say, you're, you're not going to call me and want to go to cash. Now, before you answer, just think about that. 300. I mean, I just really try to push home the point. And if they can get through that, and I already told them, you know, don't call me and sell, right? <laughs> now I have not Now I have an actual, much more um, valid sense of their risk tolerance, right? We just brush that over as a profession. Usually we want to talk about the upside. I think it really helps to inoculate people on the downside before the crash. So that's number one. But number two, it's too late. You didn't do that. So what do you do with a client who's, who's freaking out? One of the ways that I've done it is using mental accounting. So harnessing one of these biases that hurt you. Mental accounting basically means that we put things in mental buckets and we treat them differently and that's not good. One way you can do use it is harness it. So when you're showing a graph, perhaps you show you break it up into the fixed income and the equity portion of the portfolio and you show somebody and I did this in the midst of COVID with a couple clients who were scared. Of course you're scared. Everyone's scared as I mentioned. And I showed them that yes, your equity's down 22%, but your bonds are only down 2%. And I reminded them that 60% is in your fixed income. So we could actually draw from that for the next 15 years without having to touch the equity. I mean, so to really put it in front of them in a visual way, I found that to really be an effective intervention in the midst of a crisis. Interesting. So playing, you know, it's somewhat like you have to play, I don't want this to come across wrong, but you basically have to play games with their minds to keep them from doing something different. Like how, how do you use it for the benefit of them? Not the benefit of you, for the benefit of the client to keep, because you know, if they sell, it's so hard to get them back in. And I'd want, what, why is that? 
in your mind, right? Once you sell, I always tell people it's easier to sell because you're fearful and you're ready to go, but it's it's the most impossible thing to get back into cash because there's always something going on. There's never going to be like this time in the world where it's like, all right, there's an announcement that we can now invest and put our cash to work. Like there's never going to be that. Yeah, that is the hard part. And especially when everyone else is selling, right? Because we have this herd mentality. It goes back to our tribal brains. You know, it's like, you know, if, if you didn't run with the herd, you know, all those people who didn't do that, they're all dead. And they didn't turn they didn't pass down any of their genes. So we don't have those genes. We don't have the be calm and cool in the midst of a mass panic. Nobody has that because those people, like I said, got picked off or died. <laughs> right. So we all have this and it's understanding it and trying to, you know, educate ourselves about it and then to learn techniques to work around it. Yeah. And so I, I want to dig into something that you said. You did that study on like the post-traumatic after uh, financial planners after the, the Great Recession. I, I'm curious because I see it in, you know, the generation of financial advisors like myself that got started like right around that time, right? Just before, just after. And then I look at the older generation of advisors that were that were around for the the, the tech boom and bust and for many other periods of time. And the generation that started around that time is ultra conservative relative to the older generation. And I'm just curious from your perspective, from a psychological standpoint, you know, what does that mean for the future of investing? Because I, I, I just don't, I mean, these older investors took a ton of risks, right or wrong. They were just more risk, or they were more risk taking takers. Is that, do you see that from that study? Did you find anything about that, that it's going to have a greater cause in multiple generations and decades of just wealth creation of saving? I think so, because one of the things we saw in that study is a dramatic move in the midst of that crisis. These are advisors from um, sort of the buy and hold, you know, and rebalance strategy to tactical asset management that was trying to predict, you know, and the crazy thing is you try to you, you ask people like, what are the interest rates going to be in the next year or inflation? Everybody's all over the map, right? Everyone's all over. Nobody can act. So obviously, just statistically speaking, there are going to be an incredible number of people who are radically wrong. And again, it's market timing. Nobody knows the future. And it's it's a big difference from responding and, and rebalancing to what's happening to try to guess what's happening next. And to your earlier point, the problem with sell, getting all out of the market is when do you get back in? Right. And I met clients doing events who came up to me and said, oh, I went all the cash back in 2000 or 2008 or nine. You know, so they, they already took the hit and it's five, seven years later. And they're like, should I get back in? And then they're worried about getting back in because maybe it's going to go down again. I mean, it's the market timing. It's just terrible. And if it was good, I'd, I'd be telling you to do it. You know, it's just absolutely terrible for everybody. And to your point, too, generationally, we see these huge shifts and these mindsets and this collective wisdom. Like, like it's really interesting to look at this younger generation now because so many of them are like up until last year, they're like, oh, yeah, just put it all in U.S. equities, everything, 100% in U.S. equity. And you're like going, eh, you know, did, did, did you have you ever looked at, you know, historical what happens? And are you sure you can tolerate that? Because that's the other thing. It's like, yeah, sure, fine over the last hundred years. But how are you going to feel about a 40% drop that may stay down there, I don't know, for five or seven years? You're going to still hold on to that? And so I think it's that historical perspective that helps older advisors weather some of these storms because they've seen it happen. They've experienced the emotions. They've then seen the recovery. They either made a mistake or they didn't, but they've seen it um, continue and they've seen the results of that. And so these events that happen around your particular generation, to your point, studies showed that, you know, that millennials 
a lot of fear around investing. And it makes sense. They either experienced it directly themselves or they saw their parents lose their house, have to delay retirement. They heard them talking about portfolios down 50% or more. It makes sense that they would be worried about it, given that that was their experience when they were young. So so how do we overcome that, right? I mean, this kind of goes full circle to what we were talking about, you know, our upbringing and everything of that nature. But like even for financial advisors, because... I understand it. You, it's okay to be conservative, but you actually may be doing it. It may be detrimental to younger clients in their future if you're overly conservative for their future when they have the time horizon and the risk tolerance and everything of that nature. But as an advisor, you're always holding back. How can we overcome this in ourselves? How can we look inward? We're always helping all these other clients. How can we look inward and say, yes, we're probably conservative because of X, Y, and Z, but we need to become more neutral in mindset as opposed to being one way or the other? Matt, it's a it's a great question, and it comes down to you cannot help your clients around their financial psychology if you don't know your own, if mm-hmm. you don't know your own. I mean, like the worst thing in the world is a therapist who's never gone through therapy because you're going to because they have issues with their mom. You're going to start talking about your mom and they're going to be like, well, you know, moms are bad. Right, Matt, you know that they're evil people. He's like, "Whoa, what are you talking about? That <laughs> is your experience. And you have to have awareness around your experience. So advisors. And this is what I do for people in my program at Creighton University, where I train people in, in this in a traditional academic setting. And I, I make them go through their own money story. It's like, what was it like for you growing up? How did you feel about your socioeconomic status? What are your flashpoint experiences, either professionally or growing up? Did you lose a lot of money? How did you feel about it? What did you do? If you don't, and, and how did that lead to your beliefs around money, your approach to investing? Has that helped you? Has it hurt you? What do you want to change? It's an entire deep dive into your own psychology that needs to happen if you want to be one of those top tier advisors. I, you know, and I think you, you mentioned a lot in your writings and in your books, and I, I want to talk briefly about, you know, the book that you're in the process of writing and, and learn more about kind of where that's going. But you talk about how psychology breaks down to vulnerability. And I'm really curious on how you define vul- vulnerability and how does that impact our psychology around finance? Because I thought it's just as intriguing, that idea and that concept, because it, it makes it does make sense. I mean, for me, the, the vulnerability aspect is, you know, a lack of confidence in yourself. Like, I, I think it's a really good idea for you to lack confidence in your assumptions about money, about wealth, your beliefs around the importance of for example, education and income. This is one that I, I try to remain very open-minded to. You know, things change. Like my grandfather's lack of um, ability to introspect, frankly, heal wounds. You know, heal the trauma of of losing all of his money. It, his his lack of ability to do that really had a huge detriment, not just on his financial well-being, but on my mother's and on mine, right? I mean, this this stuff goes for generations. And so being having enough ego strength to basically admit to yourself that you don't that everything you think you know might not be true. And it and it's subject to change. And this is what we have found. People who do the best are ones who are flexible in their thinking. So you have a belief around money based on your experience. But you have to be flexible. You have to be willing to challenge that belief and change it over time based on new input and information coming in. Cryptocurrency is a great example, you know, just to like fire people up a little bit. You know, it's like I I really encourage you to remain open minded 
around what's going to happen with cryptocurrency five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. You can have all of your trepidation and concerns about it and and as as any any logical person would, I think. But also be open-minded. Like this this could be something in the future and taking a real hard line and doubling down that this is something we're never going to touch or never going to do. I think around any given issue is probably not great. It's not optimal psychology. Well, I mean, let's just take that example and let's just you know, rewind maybe 15 years. Remember when, you know, Elon Musk came out and said that there's this going, he's going to create a self-driving car. It's going to drive from LA to New York. And everybody was like, you are absolutely nuts. I am never getting a self-driving car. That's never going to happen. No way, no chance. GM and Ford will never let it happen. And then like five years later, kept, he kept talking about it. And everybody's like, wow, he's actually kind of doing this. And then, you know, five years later, now people have it. And now people are like driving in taxis and Ubers of self-driving, right? They're like, yeah, why wouldn't I? I mean, it makes so much sense. Like I take a nap when I set my Tesla self-drive, right? Like people are just doing it all the time. It just, but at that time you look foolish by creating such a stance and not being flexible in your thinking because history tells us, tells us that, if, if things are pushed along far enough that they will likely happen to some extent, maybe not exactly how they are, but to some extent. And if you're not, then you're going to miss out on investment opportunities and also just look foolish in the point in time looking backwards. And that, that type of relig- rigid approach is, is almost always rooted in some emotionally intense experience of your, of, in your childhood or your parents or your grandparents. You know, like I had all this fear around money. I didn't know it came from my grandpa. You know, I mean, this stuff gets passed down through family systems. Nobody talks about money. So you got to do some deep dive in. It's almost like I encourage people to become anthropologists, kind of looking at their family, like almost like they brought in a scientist to try to figure out the thinking and to try to uncover the stories. And there's so much power in uncovering the stories and having those conversations with your relatives, because it'll give you some profound insight into your own approach to money, good or bad. Yeah. So tell us about the new book that you're in the process of writing. What what spurred it? What you hope for for people to take from it based on what you've written so far? I know that you're still in the process of it, but I, I'm just curious about what, what the, the topic is and what you yeah. hope it comes out of it. Well, it was a real practical sort of book in the sense that the um, CFP board came out with this entire list of all these areas of psychology that financial planners are going to have to know and learn about. And being, being a professor myself, I knew that schools would be like, oh my gosh, how are we supposed to do this? We're not psychologists. So I figured it would, it would take somebody like me with a background in psychology and financial planning to try to put together something that covers those that's really practical. And so that's really what the book is based on. It's called The Psychology of Financial Planning. And we're going to cover all the different aspects that the, that the CFP board says that they want financial planners to know and understand. And just given the way that I approach writing to and being a financial planner myself, it really has got to be practical. Like, you know, no Nobody wants to read a bunch of theories and studies about this or that. I mean, when it comes down to it, and you've been doing a great job, Matt, pointing me in that direction, it's like, okay, great. All that's great. I got a client sit in my office. What am I supposed to do? You know, mm-hmm. and so how can I how can I use this stuff to be more effective in my work with this client? And so that's that's really the ultimate focus. It's like learning this stuff, but where the rubber hits the road. How do I use this in practice? I love that. And and we'll put more information on the book in the notes of the podcast as well. And before we get into the final two questions, I, I have one last question before the regular final questions. What is the, in your mind, from your seat, what is the future of psychology and financial planning? I think that what we're going to see is what feels a little bit weird right now, 15 years from now is going to be standard practice, where we're 
we're doing a little bit of a deeper dive, almost like a history around money that we're doing with people, just sort of a natural part of our process. Like we're used to doing risk tolerance for people now, but I think it's going to be more along the lines of like, so, you know, what are the beliefs you have around money and how can we implement that in your plan? What are your values? What matters most to you? All all this conversation that where the rubber hits the road, it's not what age do you want to retire and how much do you want to retire with? I mean, Mm -hmm. I think that is we are going to be moving way beyond that. And it's a huge opportunity. And to your point, too, with the commoditization of a lot of what we're doing, first of all, this is going to be extremely helpful. Like automation, for example, for 401ks, it's good. But unless you've sold people on why they should be saving for retirement, what happens is people will all of a sudden open up a letter, you know, from the from the 401k company and be like, whoa, I have 4,000 in there. I'm going to buy a bass boat. You never sold them on why they should invest. You never sold them on the vision, right? That's where that stuff trips up and falls down. And so I feel like we are going to be um, much more evolved as a profession to be an incredibly valuable resource for our clients that goes beyond just their portfolio, looks at their entire financial life, their their desires for their kids, their relationships with their spouse, because money arguments over money is no, number one cause of divorce in the first few years of marriage. People are very concerned about you know helping their kids. As a financial planner, you, you see it all the time. People are giving money to kids and it's hurting their kids you know, or it's hurting them. And so I think it's looking at people much more holistically around money is where we're heading. That's amazing. And and on another podcast, and and again, we're going to have you back hopefully one day. I mean, we need to talk about how we can visualize this into a passion that I also have with virtual reality and bring that together. And that very well could be, think about just sitting with goggles inside of a financial plan. People say I'm crazy, but just wait, just wait over the next, you know, 10, 15 years, it could be a case. Well, uh, it sounds like I'd want to be your client if you, if you have those goggles. I mean, it sounds like fun to me. <laughs> well, we, I might need you to help me build them because you got the psychology aspect behind it. So here with every podcast, every guest, I, I like to ask two questions to end out the podcast. First one is I, I, I love to read. I think a lot of our listeners love to read. We're always constant learners. What is a book that everybody you think should read that's not one of your own books? All right. So the first thing that comes to mind, and I don't remember the author's name, but it's Sapiens. Sapiens. This is a book that I read every year. I just go read it again. It does a deep dive into why human beings, why Homo sapiens became the dominant, you know, human subspecies. And and it really comes down to the cognitive revolution and our ability to create fantasies and then share them with each other. And it's, it's really profound and it, it, it helps keep me humble because, you know, I'm walking around like everybody else thinking I know what's going on. Like I, for example, I think I know why I'm mowing my lawn. You know, I want it to look good, but just to understand the history around that, that it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a display of wealth is what it is historically. It's like, I'm so rich that I can cultivate non-agricultural land. And I just want you to see this. I mean, that's really where the history of mowing your lawn comes from. But just stuff like that, just sort of just blow your mind a little bit and help you think about your thinking. It's a book that I, like I said, I read every year. I love that. I love that. Sapiens. And we'll get the yep. author and put it in the notes as well. Final question. I, I did get this from Barron's when I go to their conferences. What's one piece of actionable advice that our listeners can take away that you believe that they should start doing right away that they can start doing right away? Okay. So what I would suggest is that go to a living relative, call them on the phone. If you're, if you're fortunate, perhaps your mom and dad or your grandparents, aunt and uncle, somebody, and interview them about their history around money. That I think would be the most valuable thing you could possibly do. What was it like for them growing up around money? What was their socioeconomic status? And more importantly, how did they feel about it? 
what were their, you know, what, what was their earliest memory, their most painful memory around money? Just do almost become a mini psychologist and try to interview your parents and just sit there and listen and ask questions and try to get stories. And you will walk away with a profound awareness of your relationship with money. It'd be an incredible experience. And you got to let me know what happened when you do it. That is incredible. We're going to put some of those questions together and maybe send that out to people so they can do it themselves. I love that, Dr. Brad. I mean, we could talk for hours. Hopefully, you, we, you can join us again on Bridging the Gap and continue to explore. Maybe when your new book comes out, we can dive into that and uh, talk about some of those topics. But between now and then, how can people find you, stay, follow along with you, subscribe to what you're doing? Well, I am um, at Dr. Brad Klontz on all social media platforms. And um, including TikTok, I have I have like almost well, I have over 600,000 people on TikTok. I will say this. It's not for advisors like my passion there. My passion on social media, quite honestly, is to try to take all the research that I've learned about the psychology of wealth, which is a whole nother thing we didn't talk about. Like, how do people think around money? How do they behave around money who are wealthy compared to middle class and poor? And what I try to do is I try to make that information inspiring and interesting to young people who were like me, quite frankly, who grew up lower income, didn't know how people become wealthy, didn't know anything about investing. That's my passion on social media. So if you see me on there talking like, you know, how to get it, how to become a millionaire. And, you know, this is what rich people know that poor people don't know. Just understand that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to get, um, trying to engage that younger audience and give them useful information because everything else on there, how to become a millionaire is just, terrible information for people. And so I, I make these videos like, you know, what you need to know to become a millionaire. This website made me a millionaire. And then I make it make it all exciting. And then I take them to a compound interest calculator. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so so that's, that's my mission on social media. So just be, beware. <laughs> I love it. Next time then you're coming on the podcast, we'll talk book, we'll talk psychology about wealth. I mean, there's so much more we could talk for four hours on all this stuff. Uh, Dr. Brad, you're the man. I really appreciate everything you're doing. Thanks for coming on and spending an hour with us uh, on Bridging the Gap. And uh, stay well, be well, and uh, let's stay in touch and get you back on here soon. My pleasure, Matt. Thanks for having me. All right. Talk soon. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 